It's the Burt Cohen Show. Yes, we have the Statue of Liberty, which last time I checked was a female. And uh, there's something going on in America now in the ascendant. Well, maybe not so ascendant. I don't know. They sure have a lot of power. The ultra right wing. Who'd have thunk it? But what is going on with the right wing? They're attacking Planned Parenthood and uh, the Tea Party is in power. What is it all about? Uh, Let me see if I... Hello. Are you there, Amanda? Yes. Oh, good. You are there. Well, our guest today is going to be talking about why the right wing is so terrified of female sexuality. And terrified they are. Amanda Marcotte co-writes the blog Pandagon. I hope I said that right. Yes. And she is the author of It's a Jungle Out There, the Feminist Survival Guide to Politically Inhospitable Environment, of which there is no lack. Well, there is one thing you hear about a lot these days is the the term uh, American exceptionalism, that we right-wingers particularly believe that we are different. There's something about America that's exceptional in the world, that we stand out from the rest of the world. Well, it may well be when it comes to sexuality. It seems a lot of America is absolutely obsessed with sex. We have uh, the uh, sexuality, sexualizing of girls younger and younger by uh, different product companies, uh, Disney, etc., the the Barbie dolls. And yet we are extremely puritanical. It seems very, very odd. And I suppose in that way we are exceptional. And we all know that uh, Planned Parenthood is known for providing a lot of health care. Well, maybe it's better known for providing reproductive counseling. And the current right wing in power in Washington is targeted Planned Parenthood. Why are they doing that? What, what is the real reason why they're targeting Planned Parenthood? Are they uh, believers that, that fetuses, embryos, zygotes have a soul or, or what do you think, Amanda, the real reason is why they want to stop federal funding for Planned Parenthood? Well, um, some of the people that are behind it are claiming that it's about abortion, but it simply can't be about abortion because no federal funding that goes to Planned Parenthood is allowed to be used for abortion, and that's been true for since basically ever. Like, all the federal funding that is provided under Title X to Planned Parenthood and other family planning clinics like it is for contraception, reproductive health services, STD testing, cancer screening, things like that. Nothing, none of it goes to abortion. And in fact, I would say that if you really, truly, sincerely believe that abortion is taking a human life and should be prevented, 
then you would be writing big fat checks to Planned Parenthood because they prevent more abortions than pretty much any other organization in the U.S. That I've seen estimates that, as, um, I think from the Guttmacher, but I, I'm not for sure, but the estimated number of abortions that Planned Parenthood prevents a year through its contraception services is 800,000. So, oh, that's... so clearly, it, you know, defunding contraception subsidies is not about fetal life. It, it just can't be. It's illogical. Okay, well, logic seems to be uh, escaping. It seems to be a lot of emotion and fear, quite frankly. And, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was so right on when he said that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, because fear can be manipulated and is manipulated. So if it's not about... Uh, preventing uh, abortion, you know, and, and reproductive rights, given the fact that Planned Parenthood provides uh, amazingly good preventive health care to some of America's most needy and vulnerable citizens. What, what is the real reason that they're going after Planned Parenthood? Do you have some thoughts on this, Amanda? I think it's because they have a belief that sex is dirty and that women, especially female sexuality, is dirty and that women who have sex, especially outside of marriage, um, should be punished, and that they should have unintended pregnancies, they shouldn't have their STDs treated, they should pay for their sexuality in poor health and having their life choices derailed by unwanted childbearing. Wow. And, I, you know, the, the ugly truth of the matter is that this was not something that was even particularly hidden during the debate over whether or not to defund Planned Parenthood. Representative Steve King mm -hmm. got up during the debate and said, Planned Parenthood is invested in promiscuity, <laughs> um, whatever that means. <laughs> wow, that, you know, and that, I think that really hits the nail on the head that they, that's really what it's about. They may hide behind all kinds of things, but I, who is this uh, uh, Representative King, and what do you know about him, and why is he so afraid of... Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of us, uh, left and right, are not crazy about the idea of teen promiscuity. We're, we're concerned about that. But what is the, the, the real truth behind that? Is Does uh, uh, having you know reproductive health care available, is there any uh, uh, evidence that it does encourage teen promiscuity? None that I've seen. I mean, it, it, it's... The evidence is mostly in the direction that teenagers who are given comprehensive sex education with with a emphasis on contraception methods and how well they work and very accurate information about... Um, STDs and stuff like that, is that they do tend to delay having sex a little later than kids that get no sex education, and there's no evidence that abstinence only does much one way or another in terms of delaying teenagers from having sex. But I, I also wanted to say that there's also a difference between delaying sex and being so-called promiscuous, you know, just because the, the best bulk of evidence shows that high school students, not college students, but high school students who are sexually active, are usually sexually active in the context of a committed relationship. You know, it's they're not going to marry their boyfriend or girlfriend, but they're also not 
you know, just sleeping around at parties on weekends. It's that most kids wait for college for that. Right, that's true. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I, I went to college at the wrong time, clearly. <laughs> We are talking with Amanda Marcotte, author of uh, It's a Jungle Out There, The Feminist Survival Guide to Politically Inhospitable Environment. And I think it's it's so fascinating that I, I don't see these these largely men, not entirely, but mostly uh, right-wing men, uh, criticizing female sexuality. Do I, I haven't seen anything about them saying anything critical of the blatantly sexualized dolls that are being marketed to our kids uh, to play with, creating an unrealistic ideal of beauty. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you can't get there. It's it's just a totally, uh, you know, inaccessible ideal of beauty and sexiness and body image for our young girls. Why does it fit in that they're not saying anything about that? Is there some kind of that's okay I, it's it's very confusing to me, but you never hear them saying anything about the the sexualization at younger and younger ages. Yeah, and ironically, if you look at it from that perspective, the people that you see speaking most loudly and denouncing the sexualization of younger and younger girls are feminists who are generally pro-choice and supportive of reproductive health care. So, you know, all I can think is that this has been, you know, it, it, it's the divide isn't over sex or not in a lot of ways. It's So that is part of it. It's a divide over who gets to decide uh-huh. who controls female sexuality. And feminists say women, women's sexuality belongs to them. We should be treated like subjective people with our own desires, our own health, our own needs. And and that's true of, of minors as well. They should be respected as individuals. And I think, you know, there's this cultural push to instead objectify women, which is to say, you know, make our sexuality the property of others. And that, right. that comes in a couple of forms, like either this prudish attempt to control and punish women who actually have sex, and then the flip side of the same coin is, portraying women as objects and dolls and not as fully formed human beings whose sexuality isn't projected on us, but is in fact something a part of us. Mm. Yeah, it, it does bring up the idea of control and power. And I would think that after all these years, the debate about uh, reproductive rights has been going on well, basically forever. I mean, one of my great heroines of all time is Emma Goldman, who got in a lot of trouble for talking oh, about a hundred years ago about uh, birth control and women having some power over their own bodies. And she, Emma Goldman, of course, was put down tremendously as this, you know, troublemaker, this real threat to the stability of society. But that's been going on so long. I, after all these years, one might have thought that the the old argument that, that female sexuality is a subversive force that needs to be strictly controlled would have gone away. But, you know, it, we, we revere male sexuality. The double standard is, is just shocking. I mean, males are supposed to be sexual animals like the hunter, you know, going out there and just uh, uh, at least um, going through the motions, shall we say, of breeding to preserve the race. Uh, and that it, it's kind of revered. 
And why is it, as you say, that female sexuality, as opposed to male sexuality, so threatens the bonds of society? It's it's confusing to me. It's a, it's a really strange and deep issue because it doesn't make any logical sense at all. I mean, obviously, you know, you definitely see that split, especially with conservatives, where, where they'll crack jokes about men sleeping around. I, there were jokes that saw on the stage at CPAC that endorsed the notion of men having casual sex. Meanwhile, you know, even sex within the context of a committed relationship but not marriage is denounced for, by Republicans for women. So it's like, who are these men having sex with? Like, it, it, It's not good for men to have women not having access to reproductive health services because men also suffer from when there are unintended pregnancies and STDs. So it's illogical. But to my mind, I think the reason that psychologically female sexuality is subversive is just that because it, it sends them, when you accept that women have a right to be, to own their own bodies and their own sexuality, you're allowing women to be fully human. And you're saying that women are individuals in their own right and should be respected and treated that way, and that we exist regardless of our relationships to men, that we are not a class of people that's here to be the wives and mothers of men, but that we're here to be people too, just like men. I I think at the end of the day, that's the biggest threat. You see all these craggy old white guys in the Republican Party, not not that craggy old white guys are generally bad, but, you know, it's just kind of telling that it's all these men that have lived their entire lives with women as support staff to them that are the most threatened by this, by young women having the right to own themselves. Yeah, dominance and control. And I was just... uh looking at things that happened on this date in history, Zelda Fitzgerald, the uh, wife of F. Scott Fitzgerald, was killed in a fire on this day. And uh, she, F. Scott Fitzgerald, great, you know, intellectual writer, American uh, uh, novelist, uh, he put her in the hospital because she was frustrated at her ins- at his insistence that she be subordinated, that that her considerable artistic talents should be uh, less than F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, he accused her of egotism and insanity because she wanted time and space to develop her own dancing and writing. And her male psychiatrist, Zelda Fitzgerald's male psychiatrist, declared her ambitions self-deceptions and they tried to re-educate her as a wife. And here we are many, many years later. It's, wh- why is it that men so need to be in control? Don't they under... I would think men would like having sexualized uh, women, quite frankly. You know, <laughs> if, if men are encouraged at CPAC, for example, the Conservative Political Action Committee, wacko right-wingers, to have uh, uh, multiple partners and to, to just have a good time, I would think it would go along, unless there's some old belief that women are just supposed to put up with sex as a way to fulfilling their uh, earthly role as mothers. You know, it's not something they're supposed to enjoy. That was something that, that was a belief that happened in the 19th century. Uh, well, in the 19th century, it's relevant to to think about how much prostitution was basically a widespread 
um, phenomenon in a way that it just isn't now because of that contradiction. Most women, to be a good woman, you had to be virginal, you had to be chaste, and yet men were expected to be sexually active, and the different, you know, in order for that to happen, in order for the some women to be able to be good women, the rest of the women tend to get shoved into this this kind of, particularly in the 19th century, the life of a prostitute was short and, mm-hmm. and sad, basically. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it's still, well, pretty awful, really, I can imagine. We are talking about uh, right-wing male fear of women's sexuality and what it's, how it's really driving uh, a lot of the uh, agenda. It's not about, uh, you know, the, the souls of fertilized eggs and saving unborn babies. It's a lot about just fear of female sexuality. And Amanda, I got to tell you a personal story that if I hadn't seen it and heard it with my own eyes and ears, I wouldn't believe it. This was a hearing in the New Hampshire State House. It was a packed uh, representatives hall and the hearing was about uh, gay marriage about equal rights for gay men or gay women to get married and of course there was a lot of opposition to it from people who felt like it it threatened marriage as we know it like it was going to undo marriage as we know it and to me the telling moment was when a guy got up who was against equal marriage rights who said this all started when women started wearing pants. The women aren't wearing, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you, I couldn't make this stuff up. He said, when women gave up skirts and dresses and started wearing pants, that's really what it's all about. And then, and then to top that off, people cheered. People actually cheered when this guy said. <laughs> now, how... What? That amazes me because in the 1940s, Simone de Beauvoir wrote, the French philosopher wrote The Second Sex, and she complained about a law in France, and that was in the 40s, that banned women from wearing pants. And she said, American feminists are so much further along because when they, they don't mind their women wearing pants in America. I guess how things have changed. Oh, my goodness. Well, history doesn't move in one direction, that is for sure. We move forward, move back. I don't even, I mean, what is forward? We had, uh, tell me about this guy, Russ Duthon. I don't know who that is. He wrote in the New York Times, I believe you're familiar with this. He said that male commitment is the necessary ingredient for female happiness. He argued that Planned Parenthood inhibits women from this goal by allowing sexually active single women the same access as the monogamous person. Who is this guy, Russ Duthon? And it, it seems so odd today. We're well into the 21st century that for somebody to argue that uh, females can only be happy in a committed relationship with a man. Do you know who this yeah, guy is? Yeah, he wrote a memoir. Um, a long time ago about going to Harvard, which is the strangest thing in the world to write a memoir about. But it got him, a, I get the Atlantic Monthly as a columnist, and that led him to become actually the youngest New York Times columnist ever hired, which is just amazing to me. He is a very, very reactionary social conservative. He has strong anti-contraception opinions. He's a Roman Catholic of the like old school sort. And periodically he uses his New York Times column to try and and take what are attitudes that are like the very far fringe right about 
women's reproductive health and try to mainstream them. And in his most recent column like that in the New York Times, he basically said that the reason to defund Planned Parenthood is that they were ideologically um, not opposed to the use of, to providing medical care for women that aren't in committed monogamous relationships. And I, 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 and his implication was that by allowing women who are not in monogamous relationships to access health care, you are fundamentally encouraging promiscuity. He didn't really make a big distinction. He, he had a very strange idea, I think, of how people date, as if people sort of decide one day they're going to either be monogamous or they're going to be promiscuous, and then they act accordingly, whereas... I would say, in my experience, people just do whatever the context of their life sort of requires at that point. And I don't think that changing, uh, like having some sort of ideological unwillingness to to treat women um, whose sexual choices Ross Deucehat disapproves of mm-hmm. uh, would do a damn thing to change people's sexual behavior in this country. What I do think it would do is it would drive the STD and unintended pregnancy rate through the roof. And one thing I don't think people... I, I think sometimes people entertain the notion that if we just took a, a stricter, more punishing attitude towards... N- sex outside of the context of, con- of committed relationships, that it would just happen less. But what we don't understand is, like, back... He, he in, in the column, for instance, he references the 1950s as some kind of ideal time sexually when people may have had premarital sex, but then they got married, um, so it was okay. And what he doesn't what he doesn't address is also in the 1950s uh, sexually transmitted infections were so incredibly widespread that every newborn was put had mercury drops put in their eyes in the hospital oh upon birth just because it was assumed that the mother had a host of STDs that she could have passed on to that baby. It, most most women, most men had the clap, they had gonorrhea, they had herpes, they had something. And nowadays, that's just not true anymore. And, and, and the reason is not that we're sleeping around less. I would say that has nothing to do with it. I think it's that we are unashamed to go to the doctor when something burns down there. And, and if you cut off that access, you know, history shows people continue to have sex. They just do it despite their horrible STIs. Yeah, and... I, I certainly knew people who still know people who uh, tried to get uh, abortions before Roe versus Wade, and they were really taking their lives in their hands. It, it, there, and you know, pe- it was a lot of women, young women these days, don't realize how awful it was, and that it could go back to that. It really could if things like Planned Parenthood and stuff like that is not available, and absentee or uh, abstinence only education i can't help but think it makes it more attractive because it's it's the forbidden fruit <coughs> excuse me and <laughs> and that uh you know once you know about it and how you know it can be dangerous i can't i always thought the truth can't help but be a good thing the actual truth 
We are talking with Amanda Marcotte, who wrote It's a Jungle Out There, The Feminist Survival Guide to the Politically Unhospitable Environment. And having my own experience, so back in the early 80s, I'm, of course, still a male, never lived life as a female that I know of. But when I was an escort at uh, the Feminist Health Center in town, the, the point of being an escort there was that the the women going in to have reproductive uh, health treatments of one sort or another were harassed. And I, I hesitate to say this because it's so ugly, but there was a protester who yelled at a woman that I was escorting in. This, this woman protester said, quote, you'll hear your baby's screams forever. What does this say about the view of women as less than, as incapable of making their own decisions? Yeah, and I, 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 it's, it's so frustrating. I, I recently spoke to a woman I know who um, is pregnant and keeping the, the baby, but because she doesn't have really good health insurance, she has to go probably to a Planned Parenthood. She didn't tell me what clinic it was, but definitely one that performs abortions and is low cost. And she just, she was scared and intimidated by uh, these middle-aged men who approached her and tried to block her from going into oh, the God. clinic and were screaming invective at her. And she was just like, and and she told me that it basically crystallized to her that all they do, all this is about is just hating women, hating um, sexuality, being afraid because they didn't know her. They didn't know what she was doing. They didn't know if she was going to get a, a pregnancy right. test or, or anything. They, they didn't know anything about her. Sure. But they felt free to judge her because she was going into that place. Mm. Mm. And I am reading actually a book now about uh, America in the 19th century and the views about, about slavery. And a, a lot of the uh, fundamentalist Christians back then believed on a religious basis that slavery was a good thing. It was a moral thing because it it was good for the for the own good of the the captive blacks the enslaved people because they didn't know any better and and it was you know best the argument for slavery that it was best to deny their rights for their own good and and I believe it was the Webster decision correct me if I'm wrong that justice Kennedy explained in the majority opinion which did uh, restrict women's rights somewhat. He said that uh, Justice Kennedy explained in the majority decision, women might later regret the decision. And again, that's about, what is that about? <laughs> you know, Yeah, the, the decision was um, Carhartt versus Gonzalez. Oh, more and, recent, right. Yeah, and um, it, the... <laughs> It, it was a real. It was a doubly frustrating decision because all that the law that the Supreme Court upheld was a um, a ban on a very specific procedure um, for performing later term abortions. You you still can do them. You just have to do them in a different way now. And um, yeah, it, it it was unbelievably frustrating because on top of just painting women as these fickle silly creatures who don't know how to make up their mind, they were talking about a procedure that's done almost solely in cases where the pregnancy is being terminated because of medical necessity. Um, 
And so Kennedy was basically saying women, like in the, mo- it was basically the most purest form of saying women are too stupid to know their own minds because literally these are all women that go into the doctor and the doctor looks at them and goes, there is no way that you're going to get to the end of this pregnancy with a healthy mother and a, a healthy baby. It's not going to happen. And just like any other medical decision that you make that's very difficult, you know, it's not like you can't, you can't really say like, oh, well, you know, forget about it then. It's, it it was fundamentally the kind of, it's it's sticking the state in where it, it would be the equivalent of the state telling you when you go to the doctor and he gives you a diagnosis of cancer, the state saying, well, we can't let you have chemo because what if you regret it when your hair falls out? Good point. I, it, it was it was even it was nonsensical and condescending. Well, I think that whole condescension thing and keeping women in their place—I I can't even you know just hearing those words come out of my mouth—it makes me feel sick. But that's—it seems to be a part of it that they just want to keep uh, male dominance and. Uh, we're talking with uh, Amanda Marcotte, who write, co-writes the blog Pandagon, about uh, uh, the fear of female sexuality. And we hear talk, there, there seem to be a lot of people who, who protest at places where they believe there's abortion going on. They talk about fetal rights. They, they claim that the, that the fetus has a soul. But I wonder how, there may be some people, and I, I'll give them credit, there, there may be some people who, who really do believe that after a point, well, after a point in pregnancy that, you know, it is a human being, that a fetus may have some rights, but they use it. There have been attempts at laws throughout the various different states to say uh, abortion well, is murder, that it actually is murder. Uh, and I wonder if if that's more often than not, Amanda, in your opinion, just a mask uh, for seeing female sexuality as the enemy, how, what's what's your sense of how how honest and and real that is? Concern about taking of a life versus uh, not wanting women to have control over their own sexual beings. Um, I think that I agree that there are some people that are genuinely pulled short by the fetal life argument. I don't think that those people are the leadership or are, are behind it in any way. I think your average person who has has feelings that a fetus has some claim to to rights uh, also is willing to understand that uh, so does a woman and that's just how it goes. Plus, you know, I think your, your average person agrees with Roe, which is that... Right. Roe versus Wade, which is that uh, if it's early in the pregnancy and it really is kind of just a blob of cells with no no brain or or anything like that that we we attribute to like human beings, it certainly doesn't have the same moral worth as the woman who needs to like women's lives matter too. Women women have to have control over their own lives and and they are not just baby machines. I think, though, the people that are actually, like, protesting, the people that are out on the streets, the people that are writing these laws, the people that 
actually feel that this is like something they organize around are pretty much across the board just afraid of female sexuality. And the the proof is in the pudding, which is that they also agitate against sex education. They also agitate against contraception. They um, have been fighting tooth and nail to keep the government from requiring uh, mass vaccination against the HPV virus, which is a STI that causes cervical cancer in many cases. Um, I, I don't see how you consider yourself, say, pro-life while you're also trying to make it to make a world where more women die of cervical cancer. Hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that's sort of the proof in the pudding. And I, I don't, you know, I, I feel like the argument about a fetus being a person is a sort of intellectually bereft one. I mean, I think you're I think you're right. Like in the third trimester it really is beginning to be a baby. Yeah. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I think that the but you know, the vast majority of abortions are performed in the first trimester when you're not talking about uh, a thing a being that even has a a functioning brain of any sort. And if so, I don't really see how that you think that's a person. And and if uh, abortion is illegal again, it won't slow down abortions. It'll just put many many women's lives in danger. There'll still be as as many abortions, and uh, you know they they've used terror, really terrorist uh, methods to uh, to kill doctors actually, and the terror has been working a little bit. And uh, I think psychologically, it's widely recognized that that anger usually comes from fear and it's about fear the, the, a lot of these men are just so desperately afraid of female sexuality largely because they're not docile they they want insist that women be docile and i i found it fascinating i did a show oh a few months ago looking at who the tea party is what is the tea party it seems that there are at least two sections to it. There's the fiscal insurrectionists, the people who are angry about taxes uh, and, and issues like that. But then there are the traditional so-called social conservatives who you know, are against equal rights for gays and who are against abortion. And what my guest pointed out, the, the, what keeps them together, what, what ties them together as one unit, even though they disagree on a lot of things, it's about white working males feeling threatened, both their, their monetary power as well as their power over women, the white male power, the working class males largely are threatened and need to regain their lost power. And that's what ties the two sides of the Tea Party together. Now, in asking you to comment on that, can you explain the popularity of Sarah Palin among the right wing. <laughs> I, did, did your guest uh, have a feeling about Sarah Palin? Well, no, I, I have, from talking to uh, uh, people who support Sarah Palin, and I have talked to a few, um, she's cute. She's attractive. She's an acceptable woman because she's kind of hot. That's the perception of her. And therefore, she doesn't threaten the right-wing people, is that she's within the framework of acceptable definition of a woman, i.e. she has some uh, 
controlled, I guess, acceptable sexual energy. She would never be, you know, thought of in any way as promiscuous, I don't think. But uh, maybe she knows her place. Something like that. What's what's your take on on the popularity of Sarah Palin among these these men who are so afraid of female sexuality? I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think she sells herself as. I think there's and it, when you oppress somebody, I think that creates guilt in you. I think that's a fairly widespread phenomenon. And so what you see on the right a lot is attempts to sort of mollify their guilt by saying some people are happy, you know, accepting this role as a second-class citizen or whatever. And Sarah Palin really embodies that. They, they, They can point... In fact, I've repeatedly seen editorials from conservatives who claim that feminists hate Sarah Palin because we're just jealous of how hot she is and how men just love her and whatnot which is always really funny to me because it's like it, it paints feminists as some sort of monolith of ugly women that men don't like when, of course, <laughs> feminism That's is funny. a very broad movement. We have our ugly women who men don't like, and we have really gorgeous women that men fall all, all over themselves for. I don't... It, it's it's When you're actually a feminist and you see that, you realize how irrelevant you know, that is toward to the to the ideological stance of feminism. I'm like, no, feminists don't like Sarah Palin because she opposes our our policy ideas that would get women in this country actual equality. And frankly, she's a very good example of a woman who plays the system. Like she's going she she opposes true equality for women because she gets to be the exceptional woman. She gets to be, if women are unequal, she gets to be the person that gets held out by the right as an example of why they're not so bad because they let one woman have a leadership role as long as she makes a very strong display of adhering to feminine role modeling uh, of the sort that the Christian right really pushes. So, you know, they would never... They would never elevate somebody with a personality like Hillary Clinton's to that position. Right. Even though Hillary Clinton is a very nice lady. (laughs) And very, very, very capable. She's doing a heck of a job as Secretary of State. She would have been a a good president. Who knows what the future is? But it's it's fascinating to me how the, the right is so threatened by Hillary Clinton and by um, Nancy Pelosi. I found it... I, I was mystified by that in all the campaigns, the, the 527s, the, uh, the corporate uh, commercials against the Democrats outside of the party. They just found it worked so perfectly to tie in Nancy Pelosi with any candidate you wanted to defeat. My sense was that she was a strong woman. She wasn't uh, accepting a position as uh, second class, as a, as a walking Barbie doll, you know, that, that she had something. I found that really fascinating. And, and it was extremely troubling how well it worked throughout the whole thing. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I mean, if you contrast Nancy Pelosi and Sarah Palin as, as politicians, just as politicians, you can definitely see a huge difference in their ability to do that job. 
Sarah Palin quit her job because she was incapable of doing it. Sarah Palin goes on television, and she sounds like a complete moron. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi and that's was acceptable. one of the most effective. Yeah, she's, a, she's amazing. She's really intelligent. She knows her stuff. She was one of the most effective speakers of the House in history in terms of passing legislation. She controlled her, the Democratic caucus with an iron fist. Yes. And she is genuinely a powerful woman in a way that Sarah Palin is not. Sarah Palin is good at getting attention, but that, she's not good at anything else. She's not a good leader. She's not a smart person. She's not an effective politician in any real way. She's just very effective at, at getting attention. And I think, you know, those are very different roles. Like being, being like you said, some a woman who just simply gets attention is not especially threatening. A woman who actually wields power is incredibly threatening. I wonder how we can start to change that. I would have thought we've we had gotten a lot farther. Barney Frank, Congressman Barney Frank, a long time ago said, yeah, the pro-choice is a pro-choice from conception to birth, <laughs> which goes along with a, with a uh, uh, an email I got uh, in advance of this show. Uh, a woman named Grace wrote, do Republicans drink different water and breathe different air? Now they want to bring back DDT and get rid of the EPA so corporations can make more money without regulations. That would poison us all for the almighty dollar. Are these family values? So to me, that, you know, that example of you know, wanting to allow you know, unrestricted pollution uh, that would affect our, our genetic pool for the future through uh, DDT, they don't care about that. But, you know, that gives lie to the idea of family values and the whole thing about, you know, uh, violence against women is within traditional nuclear marriages almost entirely. But that, I guess, doesn't seem to bother these right-wing men nearly as much as women's equality. It's do you see? I mean, there's there's progress. Is this kind of a uh, thesis antithesis kind of thing where we've moved ahead in a lot of ways, and now uh, you know we we elected Barack Obama, somebody other than a white male, uh, and perhaps this is a way of of just fighting back about that. Uh, what's the sense that that you see of the direction and what? positive things are going on to to try to really change this and to try to uh, tell, uh, well, maybe Republican white men should be afraid of feminist women. Maybe, maybe they really are threatened. I, I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that people are are fighting over phantoms here. I think people are fighting over very real changes in our society. I And, and, yeah, and yeah. The, the question is, do you agree that these changes are good things? And I think, you know, a change to a society where women are the equal of men is a good thing. But it certainly has drawbacks for men, and I don't think any, anyone intellectually honest would deny that things like not having somebody pick up after you and, and kind of puff up your ego and... <laughs> and um, do what you tell them and just kind of generally be submissive is, it, you know, there, there are many advantages to having that kind of person in your life. But on the flip side, I would also say that there's, 
they're being way too fearful about this. There are many advantages to being to being to relating to women as full equals. You know, I, I feel like a lot of feminist men I know don't want the submissive housewife model. They they it, it, it's for purely selfish reasons they want to be with women that are their equals. And then on top of that, you know, it's an ideological commitment to equality. I, but I, I do think that men are losing. I, I do think that what our society has done, and we have really failed men in this way, which is that we have defined manhood as being about being better than women, about not being feminine, about being a big man and not a little girl. And when women start to claim power, that basically takes away from men the definition of manhood. And there isn't something that's, that's filling that gap at all for men. And I can definitely see for a lot of men that that's confusing, that's upsetting. But what we need to do is we, we just so men can have self-definition defi- and have self-esteem, it is not enough to say that women shouldn't be equal just to achieve that goal. Men need to root their self-esteem and their self sense of self in something other than dominance over women. They need to to root it in a kind of um, they need to look at women as a model. I think you see a lot of women that are taking powerful leadership roles, and they have great self-esteem and they have a great sense of self. But we don't. Those of us that are doing that, we are not feeling. We're not drawing on this belief that we're better than somebody else or that we dominate somebody else in order to feel good about ourselves. We just feel good about our accomplishments, our values, our behavior towards others. And I think men can do that. There's nothing to be afraid of, but I do understand why these changes can be disconcerting for a lot of men. Well, certainly a lot of white men in the South who were, uh, you know, of, of, of a lower class felt, well, at least, at least, uh, I'm superior to my African American neighbors. They felt that, and to to let that go must have been, you know, a, a real challenge. Be- there's a lot of insecurity there, I think. That uh, that you know, if you're not, if what is the definition of a man? A real man, you know, looking tough, being strong. It's a very easy, simplistic definition. If that's not there, ooh. What is the definition? What what does it mean to be a man? And it's it's challenging to look at that. You know, there's that old bumper sticker. I think it was that uh, men of quality are not threatened by women of equality, but it it's it's can be hard to do sometimes. And you know, people were were concerned. The, the idea of of slavery, as as you said before, when women were were strictly in the docile position, which a lot of right wing men openly want women to be they want them to be docile and servile it was awfully convenient to have slaves too you know it was a great economic situation there you know you could be on top but you know and they were by law less than and you could legally threaten them there were no laws against lynching you know just to keep them in their place you know and very slowly that changed. I think there are very few people who, who still think that. There may be some. Luckily, I don't know any uh, that I know of anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to 
to, to really accept women as equal without having to be, you know, Sarah Palin Barbie dolls, uh, you know, I, I suppose it's a threat. We are talking on The Burt Cohen Show with Amanda Marcotte, who co-writes the blog Pandagon and is author of It's a Jungle Out There, The Feminist Survival Guide to Politically Inhospitable Environment. And, you know, having been there in the New Hampshire State Senate when we uh, ended what had been legal discrimination based on perceived sexual orientation, it used to be the case that you could discriminate against someone if you thought he or she was gay. And conversely, if uh, there was a case actually where there was a gay bar that wouldn't hire a straight person, that made this that illegal as well. But I got the sense throughout that discussion that, and throughout the discussion about uh, reproductive rights and, uh, you know, uh, gay marriage and things like that, there seems to be, in addition to the insecurity about position in society, a concern that gosh, someone somewhere might be having sexual fun. And there's a tremendous jealousy about it. I'm serious. I, you know, that, I agree. Uh, it, it, <laughs> what, what's your experience and analysis of that? Well, I, I, I joked, um, you know, this whole situation recently where Mike Huckabee and Michael Medved were on his talk radio show, okay. on Michael Medved's talk radio show, screeching about Natalie Portman daring to appear in public pregnant. And they and and they their rationale for why she was a bad girl for doing this was that um she sends a signal to women that it's acceptable to be pregnant out of wedlock. Um I personally don't think that Natalie Portman being pregnant is something people care about much one way or another. <laughs> no. Um, but I do realize, I, I, I get this strong impression that it, it's their audience just eats that up because Natalie Portman is kind of really easy to hate from a certain point of view. She's beautiful. She's successful. She's winning an Oscar. She's, you know... Great academic credentials, too. Yeah, she, she, she's, yeah, she's probably a liberal. She's glowingly probably. happy. Um, she's all these things that most of us aren't at that particular moment when you're pregnant and winning an Oscar, and that's kind of the highlight of your life. So I think they were just sort of pointing all this hatred at her because she was easy to hate because she was on top of the world. And I think that there is a lot in general in the Tea Party. That's how they kind of get themselves going in a lot of ways. Well, what do you mean? Like, there just seems to be on, like, conservative talk shows and radio a lot of pointing at people and saying they are uppity. They, Uh yeah, they want too much. You see a lot of that with Fox News, them pointing at the unions and saying these people, they can buy cars with their money and they can buy houses and you should hate them because they aren't, you know, the dredges of the planet, you know? (laughs) And, and you said, and, and I, I was just going to ask, you said something in your article, I believe, about Fox News' Kirsten Powers. I'm not sure who she is, but I, I guess she said something about women being tricked by lures of happiness through freedom, thus being deprived of having babies. Again, you know, the ideal place of women. I got to ask, Amanda, why do some women vote right wing? Why do they vote Republican? Why do they vote uh, is it something about, you know, we talked about the, the the male insecurity. Is it some kind of insecurity at, 
you know, the idea of having freedom can be a little bit scary. Knowing your place, you know, it may not be good for you, but it's familiar. You know, can you explain to me why that as many women as vote right wing do why they do that? It's a, a tough thing. I think it really depends on the woman. I mean, it's di- right wing women are a really diverse group. I think um, a lot of them, you know, they're they're they live in com- conservative communities. Like bucking their community is simply too much trouble, and they're not going to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of them um, are right there with the angry white men, and they they don't they they see themselves as being able to oppress others. So you certainly, I call it the church, with the the anti-abortion movement, I definitely call it the church lady phenomenon. It's the the female leadership of the anti-choice movement is just, there are like quite a few middle-aged ladies in this, and they're just obsessed with the idea that young women are out there having fun and they can't, do anything about it. I don't think that it's um, a new phenomenon in any way for older or for women to to assume the position of moral scolds to other women. Hmm. And I I think it's just because they don't necessarily, you you know, for for whatever reason, that's not the choices they've made in their life. And now they're going to punish you for choosing differently. Oh, fascinating. I think you're probably on to something there. Tell us a little bit in the last couple of minutes about your book, It's a Jungle Out There. Who who would buy that? In what ways does it uh, help women dealing with the new equality? Well, that's my first book. I have two, another oh. one called Get Opinionated. But the first book um, is basically my feeling about it was like a lot of being a, a lot of the struggle of being a feminist is you can't change the world overnight, so how do you live in the world now? And a lot of it's its mostly just humor, it's jokes, it's kind of making fun, and it's based on the kind of theory that um, humor is the best medicine. You know, you, you suffer the sing, slings and arrows of sexism every day, so you, you deserve to have a book where you can just sort of laugh about it. That sounds good. Um, and, and the second so book? That's, the second book is called Get Opinionated, A Progressive's Guide to Finding Your Voice and Taking a Little Action. And that's a book that's about, it's kind of an overview of different progressive political views, kind of for somebody who, it, the ideal audience for it is somebody who's beginning to kind of feel out liberalism, but they don't really know why or what they're kind of going to get into. And it's it's a guide to sort of point you in the direction of, do you want to be an environmentalist? Do you want to be... A feminist, you want to be all of these things, and, and how do you go about that? Wow, that's got to be threatening to a lot of uh, men, because shouldn't you be home just uh, being a, a docile housewife? That's what we're talking about here, having fun. Amanda Marquardt, thank you so much. Your blog is Pandagon. Thanks for being with us on the Burt Cohen Show today. Fascinating subject, not going to go away for a while. Thank you. All right, and uh, we have been talking about sex. What men are so... What, why, why are people so afraid of women being sexual? And we'll go out here with the song uh, by Larry Coriel, Celebrating Sexuality. Email me, Bert, at BertCohen.com. Thanks for listening. 